So I want to revisit last week just for a few moments. I know all of you were here, weren't you? Just kidding. I, um, I was in quite a state of, of uh, heart sickness, heartache, from after the killing of, the, of uh, Jordan Edwards, a 15-year-old boy in, in Texas by a policeman. And it, you know, and in my reflections, I was, I was uh, thinking about the, the challenge of, of trying to stay awake in what I described last week as a, as a hell realm. You know, where we're, as I mentioned, just the fact that we're just a few steps from slavery and that, that and just in all the different ways in the world where people still think that you can resolve difficulties by, by killing or there's just so much greed, there's so much hatred that can give rise to all kinds of un, unbearable kinds of suffering and so much delusion, real, not realizing that whatever one does, one does to others, one does to oneself and how it the, how one's actions perpetuate either the cause of happiness or the cause of suffering. And I was just, and I, I was thinking about how caring, um, caring sometimes impossible ideals, uh, models of, of somehow being impervious to events in the world. We tend to impose some, what I called last week, a kind of cruel, uh, expectation of ourselves to somehow be happy in the face of so much misery, and that that really um, that that is that, that's adding a certain burden. It's compounding the stress that's often difficult enough. In the course of sharing that and really trying to highlight and maybe remind anyone anyone here that you may in some ways carry impossible ideal, not impossible ideals, but put, let the ideals of awakening become a cause of stress and tension rather than the cause of awakening. Has that ever happened? Does your practice cause you stress? Then there's something about the way that you're doing it. It's about wise effort. It's about wise understanding. It's not about the practice. The practice is is neutral. The teachings are neutral. They just, they're teachings. They are empty, in other words. They are empty of any inherent value or meaning. The value or the meaning or the impact entirely depends on how we meet them, how we relate to them. So I realized in the course of my conversation that I didn't, I didn't, maybe I did, I don't remember now, but I was left with the feeling of, of highlighting, having highlighted much more the, the normalcy of feeling really heartsick or unhappy. And uh, in my attempt to, to uh, hopefully disabuse you of any excessive expectations of some kind of uh, grand state of, of being untouched. I may have, I may not have given full um, balance 
to the, the capacity that we really have to sit in the middle of this crazy world with, with what the Buddha described as upekka or equanimity, balance. And it was, it was very interesting that very soon after I, I was here, I was reading about the life of the Buddha and how, you know, of course he had done some serious practice and his mind had, as it's described, gone to the unconditioned, to craving cessation, it had to come. And to me this, this inspires me, this sense of having gone to the unconditioned, to be able to know, know in ourselves that which is untouched by whatever visits. Doesn't mean that we don't feel joy, don't feel sorrow, but we also know within ourselves some substratum, some capacity, some way of being with that that, um, that doesn't add to it, that doesn't cling to it, that doesn't push away. Some place in us that is, that is able to remain free. I don't mean happy with a big smile on our face, but free even when we are facing difficulties. And when I, when I read about this, um, when I was reading about the life of the Buddha at this time, I, I began to feel this kind of joy. And when I felt joy, my mind calmed down. There was a kind of calming. And when the, my mind calmed down, I fell into a, a much more, uh, much more um, natural state of what we might call concentration or samadhi, a kind of a well-established mind. That's the translation for samadhi. And, and in, that, in that moment of, of experiencing the joy of reflecting on the, the awakening that is possible within our hearts, and then feeling the calm and then feeling the sense of concentration, I also began to sense again that, that place in me that is, that is um, that I don't even know how to talk about it exactly. I try my best, but I know that, I'm, that words can never capture what that is. But that, uh, that unconditioned wellness, that inexhaustible resource of what we sometimes call Buddha nature, awareness, but I began to feel the, the fragrance of that, which was equanimity. And very soon after that, I read, I started reading a little bit more about the, you know, in, in the continuation of reading about the Buddha's life, a, a story was cited about uh, the Buddha at an old age. And at the, when, he was a, when he was getting older, his cousin, uh, whose name is Devadatta, I, I know this story well, but I've, I hadn't read it for a while, Devadatta wanted, um, who was his cousin, wanted to take over the Sangha, basically. Wanted to take over the community. And uh, basically tried to discredit the Buddha um, in front of all the, the nuns and the monks. And then finally, when he couldn't discredit him in front of the nuns and the monks, he, he tried to have him killed. And the way it's described in the stories, and maybe it's just some, it's some kind of magical composite of our ideals, but somehow magically, the Buddha was, seemed to be in, untouched by this whole thing. Heart, you know, his heart was 
sad that the, it was challenging, but he, he was able to sit in the middle of it. So it's a, I find it very useful to go back to the example of the Buddha, because it, at least for me, and if you really study the life of the Buddha, there, it, there is some kind of joy that comes from, from reminding ourselves of not so much this historical person, but in that capacity in human beings to awaken, to make a shift from being in a state, not just heartsick, but just so reactive, making it more, more and more difficult in whatever difficulty we're having, instead being able to meet the experiences, having them in some ways, at least the way I like to talk about it, having them tenderize my heart, have them lead to a sense of calm, lead to a sense of understanding, lead to a sense of equanimity. And in the sense of equanimity, where the Buddha came to was, this, was some very simple reflections that that express the understanding that comes when our heart and when our mind is wise and our heart is wide. That although I wish things were otherwise, things are as they are. That's That's one of the versions. Although I wish things were otherwise, things are as they are. Now this quality of equanimity, of 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 being able to meet the world with understanding is in the face of there being, as I started with tonight, so much suffering, so many things that are hard to understand, difficult to bear, just naturally give rise to some kind of recoiling. When we, and we all live in this world. And it, every day we're meeting something that is... Um, that just seems unspeakable. All you have to do is read the news or walk down the street or try to drive here in San Francisco now. I can't tell you, you know, I meet with people, you know, all all day long and in this last year, there is, it's almost to a person, oh, the driving. You know, just even that alone, just the dukkha, the things that are hard to deal with. But then the, the, the income inequality, the housing, the, the racism, the social, you know, the injustices, the, just so much to deal with. Although I wish things were otherwise, things are as they are. So this, is, this, un, this wide view, this view that's mixed with understanding, although I wish things were otherwise, things are as they are, this is a counterbalance. This is a, this is a, a way of being able to live in this world with our heart wide open and really care about each other care about our happiness, care about other people's happiness, join with other people in their happiness, and join, be able to join with other people in their, in their difficulties. This joining is the cause of, heart, of, of our heart breaking, opening. It means that we, 
let ourselves feel that we don't exist apart from each other. But unless we have some kind of balancing mechanism, some kind of understanding, we will get swept up in someone's pleasure and get almost feel a kind of greed in their, in their pleasure. We will get completely buried by their suffering. We will just drown in sorrow or despair or hopelessness unless we temper it with this great impartial quality, this balanced heart that, um, that knows, although I wish things were otherwise, things are as they are. Or as one, when we're, when we're training ourselves in this quality of equanimity, and we're, we have someone near and dear to us, a family member, a friend. I have, you know, my friend, I just have to say it, and I hope everyone will put him in your heart. He, I don't know if he probably wanted me to talk about this, but I am anyway. My friend uh, Hanuman, who um, I speak to every Tuesday before the group, now for countless years, who's like a, a fountain of Dharma. So we have this little Dharma rave before I come in. He just found out in the last three days that he has prostate cancer. So this is, in these days, more treatable, but nevertheless, it's really hard to bear. And he's in a state of great anxiety. With all the wisdom in the world, he has, his organism is in a, you know, he's in a, a state of uncertainty and anxiety. It's human. And, you know, I'm, it, it's not a time for me to give him advice, <laughs> but more to just join with him. But inwardly, you know, I wish this wasn't happening for him, and I would like for him to know, although I wish things were otherwise, things are as they are. And I will do everything, I'm thinking as him, I will do everything to bring healing. But whether, whether I heal or whether he heals if, when I'm reflecting on him, it's beyond our will or our wish. This is wise understanding. Wise understanding gives, creates the possibility for, for um, some peace, even though I wish things were otherwise. So the, when you have someone in your life who's out of control, who's causing you, causing other suffering, you see that they're... they're no matter how much you try to, to support them and help them, they just keep making messes. Do any of you have anyone like that in your life? How many people? Come on, that's all. Now, this is a healthy crew, healthy crowd. So when, you're ref when you have someone in your life like that, to, to repeat inwardly, to remind you of that unconditional quality, and I say unconditional because it's available to us, but we often, because of our, our mental habits, we often don't attune to that capacity that we have. But this is available, and so we incline our mind, our attention to this kind of reflection that says, inwardly, we hold that person in our heart, that person who is really in dire straits, who's suffering, causing suffering, repeating the causes of 
suffering, we hold them in our heart and we say, I care about you. We join with them. I care about you, but I cannot keep you from suffering. So this, to me, captures, I care about you, but, but, this, but I cannot keep you from suffering. This really captures the, the, the balance of, of this heart quality of equanimity. Because we all, have to, we, all, if we all want to have an open heart. I think we do. I, think, I don't know anybody here who wants to have a closed heart. But if to have an open heart in this world, you have to have understanding. Otherwise, it's just, it's, it's too difficult. So we, so we train in equanimity. So I thought I would share a few little passages that I dug up just before we started tonight on equanimity. So this is equanimity toward the the fact of sickness, old age, and death. This is wisdom, understanding. This is Jennifer Wellwood's wonderful passage called The Dakini Speaks. The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. So it turns out when we relax the tight fist of grasping, of thinking, of trying to make deals and trying trying to find some way of hiding away in fear and dullness, when we relax our tendency to push away the the difficulties of life and cling to the pleasure, there's space there, open and inviting. And that space, as our mind relaxes its tight fist of grasping, that space allows that quality of tranquility, that firmly established concentration, and out of that comes the quality of of balance and equanimity. So let's stop making deals, like Jennifer Wellwood said. And another 
just a, a reminder that the quality of mindful attention practiced as continually as we can itself gives rise to this quality of equanimity because mindfulness itself has no agenda. It's not trying, it's not pushing anything away, it's not holding anything. It simply opens to what is and clearly comprehends what's presenting itself. And this is what, this is how an Advaita Vedanta teacher spoke about this. True awareness is a state of witnessing without the least attempt to do anything about the event witnessed. Your thoughts and feelings, words and actions may also be part of the event. You notice all unconcerned in the full light of clarity and understanding. You understand precisely what is going on because it does not affect you. It may seem to be an attitude of cold aloofness, but it is not really so. Once you are in it, you will find that you love what you see, whatever may be its nature. This choiceless love is the touchstone of awareness. If it is not there, you are merely interested for some personal reasons, which when we're interested for some personal reasons, there's usually clinging, which, is, which is, opposes this quality of equanimity. Although equanimity does, does, is not without care, it is, it's with total care. But it's not about care because of me. It's care because that's what hearts do. That's what our hearts are made to do, to care. So the last one, and then I'll hear from you if you have any comments or questions about equanimity, or about the, the um, suffering of the world, or anything that you may want to speak about. I, I thought that I would end my little, my stray thoughts with the words of Donald Babcock, who gets brought into the room every few months, a poet who wrote the poem, The Little Duck. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he's thinking things over. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he's part of it. He looks a bit like a mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree. But he has hardly enough above the eyes to be, to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is. 
and neither do you. But he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. He has equanimity. He sits right in the middle of it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity. So another counterbalance just to bring in the, just a flavor of the what are called the factors of enlightenment. I talked about tonight when, when I heard, when I read again about the, the awakening of the Buddha, I felt this kind of joy arise in me. Joy is a factor of enlightenment. It counterbalances, it is a counter to the tendency of our mind to, to contract, to feel small, to feel irritated, to feel aversive, to feel complaining, to be evaluating, comparing, judging. Joy is a balance to that. It's considered one of the seven factors of enlightenment. One of the, one of the energy-giving factors of enlightenment, because our energy system gets very diminished, very contracted. Uh, when, we're, when our mind is in a state of reactivity. So again, just to bring in the, the list of the, of the factors of enlightenment, there are three active things that are energizing uh, factors of mind, and then there are three pacifying. The three energizing are the quality of investigation, interest basically, just interested in what's happening right now. The quality of this quality of um, of joy. I forgot what the third one. Somebody remind me. What's the third active one? Somebody here is good with the lists. Can't remember. Effort, energy, energy, joy, and investigation. So the three energizing factors of enlightenment, and then there are three pacifying, tranquility or calm, concentration, that well-established mind. And the, the third pacifying quality, equanimity, which I spoke about already. The smoothing out of our reactivity. The navigator for the awakening of these factors is mindfulness. That's the seventh factor of enlightenment, or sometimes called the first factor of enlightenment. But a very central factor of enlightenment is joy. We need joy in our life. We need rapture. We need delight. We cannot just get by on bearing the unbearable. We need things that gladden our heart. We need to be able to take in have our, the dust of memory 
cleared enough to be able to take in the wonder of our senses, sights, sounds, smells. We have to have a sense of immediacy that gives us that kind of the energy, a gladness of being alive and here. And, and we need to remember that we have not lost what we will lose so that, we're, so that we, we appreciate what we have and feel the joy that comes with the feeling of gratitude. Easy to lose it. Easy to just shrink into a, a, a ball of contention. So I wanted to, again, as a counterbalance to our tendency to be reactive, as a doorway or a gateway to equanimity and balance, uh, I read you once again the poem from Jack Gilbert. And this will be the, the end of my words. It's called A Brief for the Defense. Sorrow everywhere. Slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what life wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in, of their future. Smiling and laughing while someone in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta. And the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the demons. If the locomotive of life runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship, anchored late at night in the tiny port, looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes, one naked light burning, to hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back, is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. So we sit right in the middle of it, and we row our boat gently down the stream, merrily, 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 understanding that life is but a dream. It's dreamlike. So we, and the only way we can remember that kind of dreamlike quality is to have a, a, a heart and mind that is, that is open, that sees the joys and the sorrows um, as, um, as true, but at the same time ever-changing. We sit in the middle of it. 
Any comments, questions before we call it a night? Please. Call it a hell realm. <laughs> hell realm a duca plane, yes. I was reflecting on that, and it made it seem to me that if we're in a, if we're in a duca plane, just using that language suggests that there are other planes where, where there is no duca. And my understanding of duca is that all things that arise, all things that exist, have that quality of duca. Yeah, the word dukkha is the word for unsatisfactoriness or marked by, by stress, suffering, translated as a wheel out of round where something's off. Anyway, to say that we're in a dukkha plane suggested that there were other planes that, that didn't have yeah. it, and I, I think that I was having a hard time um, squaring that. <laughs> having Maybe a hard time with... Yes. Uh, I have to say I wasn't being exactly literal, <laughs> figuratively, which means we are, in a, we are in a dukkha plane. We could say that all planes are dukkha planes. Any plane that you're born into will have unsatisfactoriness. So I could have said that about all planes. But um, I, when you said it about the dukkha plane, I thought of the story of the of the fellow who was uh, a yogi who lived in a cave on the island of Kopangan in Thailand. And he did a long practice period and he contracted dengue fever and died in the cave. And when people found his body, they found inscribed on the walls of the cave the words, oh, what a joy to realize there's no happiness in this world. It was, it was really the, the, free, the liberating of the heart when we, when we can just acknowledge that this is a dukkha plane, that, that, our li- that this life, if you're born, will be marked with some kind of unsatisfactoriness. But you could say that pretty much about any plane, <laughs> if you're born. So that's... So I don't know if that, if that makes it any better, but oh, let's remember that. Oh, what a joy to realize there's dukkha in life. So otherwise our life's an endless running from just the truth of how things are. I think that was the message of tonight. So thanks for letting me emphasize it a little more. So thanks for your practice. Thanks for your generosity. Um, let's see, yeah. Please, uh, the next time, please, I'm, I'm a little tired of being on display, so start coming forward a little bit. If you see that this place is empty, start moving forward. Anyway, love being with you tonight, and thanks for listening to my stray thoughts. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostofthebrotherhood.org slash donate.